Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Thane Rosenbaum. His newest book is Saving Free Speech from Itself. In it, he confronts the confusions and contradictions around free speech. Do we really want it to always apply without restriction, or is some regulation warranted and necessary when free speech is weaponized in such a way as to harm innocent people as in the tragic events in Charlottesville in the summer of 2017? Thane Rosenbaum, Distinguished University Professor of Toro College, bravely takes on this cultural lightning rod in a provocative and compelling book that engages everyone, from political junkies to the general public. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Thane Rosenbaum. Thane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, hosting me, Scott. Oh, it's a pleasure. You've written a book, Saving Free Speech from Itself. Now, we're not much for making heresy lists today in late modern American life, but if we were, this might make the heresy book list because you're taking a stab at what is a sacred cow. You're saying that American life, Americans maybe have an overinflated, uh, unreflective view of free speech and that it might be actually deleterious and hurtful to American life. Is that fair to say? Yes. Uh, words, speech can be used as weapons. Uh, they're oftentimes used as weapons. Uh, other liberal democracies have other kinds of curtailments on speech to protect human dignity. Uh, and we do not. Uh, we, since the 1960s, have expanded our free speech right protections and guarantees uh, in, in such a way that it causes actual harm, not just psychological harm, uh, but physical harm. Uh, the, uh, the 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 Neuroscience around the world has shown uh, that indignity, humiliation, stress, uh, signage that causes people to lose, to have to defend their existence, to not feel like equal members of society, to participate in democratic uh, uh, deliberation, to feel like a citizen who has equal status and standing. Uh, these have effects on people and it causes harm. And yes, uh, in our in our legal system, we have a, a much more of a unfettered belief that speech should be free uh, in almost all contexts. Uh, and it is heretical, as you're pointing out, to raise the possibility that we've gone too far. You have a line earlier on the book that you say that this is the trump card that's always played when the speaker is sort of is employing speech that can be harmful or inflammatory. It's something like my free speech will cancel out your rights to experience your own brand, your own brand of American freedom. Now, we don't have this conception in most other places in American life, right? We have the sense that, well, your, 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 your access to your freedom ends where it impinges on the rights of another, right? That, that are, we're always in this kind of calculus of how much freedom can you employ before you curb freedom of another. But you kind of argue that with speech, this, this conception seems to go out the window. Yes. In fact, Scott, it would surprise the founding fathers, uh, because if you read their letters uh, in the Federalist Papers, uh, you see uh, that they had a very different understanding of what free speech meant. First of all, their understanding, first of all, first, it, it was the last of the freedoms that to, were to be included in the First Amendment. They were And some far. prominent, you mentioned the, in, the, in the book, several prominent founding fathers voted against it. Yes, yes. 
James Madison, uh, Hamilton, uh, it wasn't, they, they received pressure from states uh, that had their own constitutions, like, uh, like the, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, that uh, compelled them to in, add speech to the First Amendment. But their understanding was a few things. One, if there is free speech, it's there to criticize the government. It's not to use that speech as weapons to attack each other, uh, number one. Uh, number two, uh, Yes, you have this right, but it needs to exist in harmony uh, with the rights of others, uh, of, you, of other people who to whom we are speaking, because they have rights of equality and citizenship, and it should not be used in a way that it violates and tramples upon those rights. And we've lost a sense of both of them. Now we think that speech is more important than press or religion. It's the it's the primary fundamental right of the Constitution. Uh, and uh, speech can be used in any way uh, other than shouting fire in a theater and some other limited exceptions. Aside from that, the government can't stop me from speaking. You know that that the founders wanted speech. The, the significance of freedom of speech was was not for, for the just unlimited kind of libertine rights of the individual, but you say that, that evaluating options, weighing values, drawing conclusions, and making assessments is what liberal thinkers are expected to do. So in the, in the vein of the thought that the founders thought, well, we needed a sort of virtuous citizenry to make the union more perfect— it seems like this is the context for their concern for speech, right? Not just the unlimited egoism of the speaker or something, but okay, if if we're gonna if we're gonna have a, a free society and one that can self improve, we're gonna have to have exchange of reasons, and that seems to be uh, their concern. You know, the, the speech that would that would further the public good, not just any kind of speech in general, no matter how antagonistic or foul or or vulgar, right? Scott, that was really well done. In fact, I don't think I can add to that. <laughs> no, that was, <laughs> no, that was really, no, that was just, I was smiling throughout. That was very well done. Yes, uh, the founding fathers thought that free speech will encourage people to come to the public square and stand on soapboxes, soapboxes uh, and raise ideas that will, uh, that are a public concern that will uh, make us better decision makers, better, better policy makers, and inform the public as to the big issues of the day. That's the purpose of free speech, not to burn crosses on the uh, lawns of African-Americans, not for Nazis to come swinging through small hamlets of Chicago where there's an abundance of Holocaust survivors, uh, not for uh, ruining the military funeral uh, of the father trying to say goodbye to his uh, son for the last time uh, because a church group wants to protest gays serving in the military. No, this is not what they thought. The founding fathers thought we will be a better country. The public good will be served if people have the freedom to come and speak about the issues of the day, matters of democratic deliberation, uh, and of matters of public concern. And we instead have said, no, uh, speech can be used to attack one another, uh, and the government can't stop us. I, I wonder, is some of this, you know, I, I think of like Aristotle can say that political science is the highest science, which now we would think that's you know, that sounds so shrill and strange to our ears, but he's thinking that, you know, this is a, a science and that humans are rational animals and our, our ability to act together collectively for, for the common good and a policy. And this is a wonderful thing. And I mean, it seems like the founders have more of that view of politics as opposed to just competing egoisms and shouting in a public. And it, it seems that like the loss of that sense of kind of classical virtue and what politics is about. Does that inform why we are so banal about our conceptions of speech, in your opinion? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, remember, uh, King George III uh, caused us in, in essentially 
uh, placed us in a position that we would want to split from from England. Uh, and all of the amendments, to some degree, respond to restrictions that he imposed on the colony, uh, so that speaking out against the king uh, was seditious. And the founding fathers wanted Americans to be able to speak out against whomever their political leaders are uh, for the purposes of, of improving uh, democracy. Uh, it really all was about the public good, not about the narcissism of the self. I had something important to say, and you can't stop me from saying it. It really was about a kind of collective deliberation. Uh, and it's based on some understanding that we come to this public square in good faith for a reason uh, to improve society, uh, not to make statements that are intended to cause harm. Yeah, you talk about in the book the the instance of of Colin Kaepernick and the kneeling during the national anthem, and it, you you make it clear that look, the government can't stop him from kneeling in protest or even from burning a flag, but that doesn't extend over to an employer. I mean, I, the, the, an employer doesn't have the, the Constitution doesn't uh, make an employer you know, allow me to stop work at all hours of the day to get up and make what I think are our political statements left or right or, or center or whatever, that this is that, that, you know, we've kind of, it seems you argue we've conflated this idea that the government with the, with the strong arm of the state and, and coercive force that the founders were worried about times that's different than, than expectations in normal private life at <laughs> work and things like this, that we've, we've really, see, you argue we've really conflated all this. Yeah, we're very confused. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Uh, even if you disagree with the overall premise, I think you'll walk away from reading it really knowing a lot more about what what free speech means. And it may uh, ask you, uh, compel you to rethink some of your assumptions. But you're right. The First Amendment says that the government cannot abridge speech. That's it's, That's all it says in the First Amendment, cannot abridge speech, which means that if you have something to say of a political nature, they can't deny you a permit to go to the public square, to an area, uh, and say it. Uh, they can't stop you. They can't arrest you, right? There's a famous Cohen versus uh, California case where uh, Cohen was uh, uh, objecting to the draft during the Vietnam War, and he came to a courthouse wearing a jean jacket that said, fuck the draft, right? And so, of course, he was ad- he was arrested in the courthouse while walking the hallways, uh, and he won uh, because that although may may have been vulgar, uh, it was a political statement uh, about the draft uh, that he was making. Again, could have said it in a nicer way, but he is allowed to say it. He didn't direct it at any one particular person, right? He was speaking to the government. He wasn't saying, hey, lady, fuck you. <laughs> he was talking to the government. Uh, so that's a very famous uh, case that speaks to this idea of what its fund foundational purpose is. Um, but We've conflated it to think that it also involves individuals. If two people get in, two individual citizens get in an argument, which so often happens, and at some point one of them gets out of control and starts insulting the other or saying something, and the other one says, hey, stop talking. You know, that really hurts me. Stop saying that. And then the other one says, hey, it's a free country. I have a right to say whatever I want. That's absolutely wrong. <laughs> that is not the First Amendment. The founding fathers would like say, what, what's, what are you, an idiot? No, we're not interested in giving you the right to get into an argument in the park and start insulting people and claim that the Constitution gives you the right to do it. No, and you're a jerk and you deserve to have no friends. But I'll tell you one thing, the government isn't here to protect you for that. It's only protecting you, for instance, the Colin Kaepernick case. If the state of Texas had passed a law that said at all public events, uh, everyone must stand at attention for the 
uh, singing of the national anthem. Then Jerry Jones, uh, uh, it wouldn't matter what Jerry Jones had said, because it's not the employer uh, that's making the requirement. It's the state of Texas. And I I think that the players in such a situation would have had a better argument. But they don't have an argument when they say, I'm protesting the government. And even though I'm wearing the uniform of the Dallas Cowboys five minutes before kickoff, I have a First Amendment right to speak. No, that's not true. Uh, He has a team. Uh, He owns the team. He actually owns the stadium. If he wants you to dress up in a miniskirt, uh, you have to do it. If he wants you to stand at attention, you have to do it. It seems weird because you're you're trying to make a political statement, but the the entity that's abridging your speech in that case is your employer, not the state of Texas. Yeah, and you've got the right to quit. Exactly. You could say, you know what, I want to go play for a team where the owner doesn't care if I stand or not. And I really feel very strongly that Black Lives Matter and that the police are racist. And this is super important to me. So release me from my contract and let me play for another team that doesn't have the same problem. That's how that gets resolved, Scott. But it doesn't get resolved through invoking the Constitution. And to be fair to our listeners who haven't read your book, you make that argument. And then a couple of chapters before, uh, you're making the argument that African-Americans, Jews, other minorities have the right not to be harassed by by out, uh, bombay, you know outlandish and derogatory exercise of speech so this is this is something where you're well, you know you you're 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 interested you, part of your argument is that minorities in america are subjected to some awful things and then even groups like the aclu will defend neo nazis and things in, in 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 the interest of this again this sort of uh, inflated sense of of autonomous free speech that we've come to all believe in. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, the book is, uh, you know, raises a number of different possibilities for what we could do. But I believe, like Europeans, that hate speech should be restricted speech uh, and that the government can actually uh, create statutes where hate speech can be criminalized. Uh, that happens all throughout Europe. Uh, here, it goes to the Scott Jones line of heresy. Uh, you simply can't talk about that. Uh, but this book raises many different options of what, because there, the speech is being used to attack another individual, to deprive them of equal equality under the law, to uh, e- to protect them from the sense of being equal, the sense of what does it mean to be a citizen, the, the respect that a citizen should have uh, in, in functioning and feeling like he or she is welcome in the public square. Uh, Instead of feeling, uh, as you would say, harassed or threatened or incited, others are being incited to commit violence against you. So yes, we we in those instances, I think we should be taking a much stronger look of restricting uh, speech uh, because it causes harm. In the uh, Kaepernick example, again, that that moment was an attack against the government, against the police. Uh, it's not an attack against individuals. By the way. If the team wanted to dress up uh, in a way that mocked African-Americans or mocked uh, Muslims uh, in such a way that was made them feel threatened, not just hurt or offended, but threatened or incited in some way to feel that violence or that their citizenship doesn't count for much, uh, that to me is very different because the, uh, the target there are people individuals. The target is not the police. Uh, and that's the difference. And the point I also was making in the in the NFL case is that the same people who keep telling you that free speech should be unfettered, untrammeled, 
never impinged, are some of the same people that decided they weren't going to watch the NFL if the teams weren't going to stand at attention for the playing of the national anthem. So there's a hypocrisy there, Scott. Wait a minute. You said that you believe in unfettered free speech. Yes, you don't want the government to stop you. But if you really believe in unfettered free speech, why not the, Why not just say, look, I'm not going to turn off the TV simply because the players want to make a political statement. They have that right. Uh, so you get, I talk about the book, a lot of confusion and a lot of hypocrisy. Uh, the very people who claim or purport to believe in free speech believe in it up to an extent. And when it comes to other things, they want to shut it down. It's interesting, too. I it strikes me that a majority of Americans, even those who are uh, on the center right or right, like most people would look at the Second Amendment and say, of course, this, this doesn't mean you can have rocket launchers in your backyard or, or, or you know, massive automatic, you know, a tank or something like that. People, people instinctively just say, well, of course, it doesn't, you know, there are common sense uh, restrictions, but but that doesn't seem to carry over the way a lot of people right or left think about the First Amendment. Yes. In fact, I talk about this a lot in the book. I, I essentially call them First Amendment and Second Amendment crazies. Uh, in many ways, they have nothing in common. The First Amendment absolutists laugh at the Second Amendment absolutists. They say, what are you nuts? Yes, of course, we're taking away your assault rifle. But if, well, that doesn't mean we, we take away your deer hunting rifle. We just don't think that you should be uh, outfitted in your house with the capacity of, of, of a military commando. There's no reason to have that gun. And you're being absurd and not allowing us to regulate it. But the First Amendment absolutists are crazy and they're all in their same way. They're saying, you know, uh, if you prevent me from burning a cross on an African-American's lawn or for dressing up like a Nazi and parading in front of Holocaust survivors, the next thing you know is you're going to stop me from criticizing Donald Trump's policies within, for immigration. And, and, and I would make the same argument. Are you nuts? Don't you think there's a difference? No, I simply think that what the government should do is protect other citizens from your assaultive speech. That's all I'm saying. That doesn't mean that you can't criticize the government. It seems it means that you should not run over other individuals and make them feel worthless or deny them their sense of equality and citizenship. So, yes, both the First Amendment, uh, First Amendment and Second Amendment absolutists uh, theoretically have nothing in common. But when it comes to this, they're they're twins. They should both go bowling together because they actually agree on the same logic. You make an interesting point in the book. You talk about free speech on college campuses and and, and sometimes the lack thereof. And it, it seems like the inverse sometimes at certain campuses. What, what you're talking about in, in off-college campuses is often this sanctioning, you know, this refusal to sanction a, a, a speech that's harassing and abusive and, and, and meant to sort of take dignity away. But then on college campuses, it, it does become a banning of free speech sometimes just on ideological grounds. Well, this person's too, too center right. <laughs> this person's too, you know, or, or Bill Maher has made the wrong kind of statement. It's about, you know, uh, Israel, Palestine or something. And then this becomes uh, uh, the inverse of, of almost like what you're talking about in some instances on college campuses. Yes, there's like two universes out there. There's the outside public square where we say uh, more speech is better right? More speech is better than restricting any speech. The, the more speech you have, it'll cancel out the bad speech. That is sort of the context of 20th century First Amendment jurisprudence, right? Justice uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Justice Brandeis, uh, both of whom in opinions gave us the architecture, the language for a marketplace of ideas 
that welcomes all ideas, that the good ideas will cancel out the bad ones, and that uh, that the more speech you have, it provides sunlight and exposes all of these other issues that would otherwise be in the dark, right? So that's the way we are outside of campus. Inside campus, we don't prevent pr- provide the same idea at all. There we say, if your idea upsets me, I don't want to hear it. If it's in a book and it's upsetting, I want it off the syllabus. If you've been invited to speak at campus and you take a position that I don't like, I'm going to shout you down or I'm going to sign a petition and not let you come. Now, this is odd, Scott, because in a university setting where a liberal arts education means liberal minded is that I'm open to all ideas. That doesn't mean I accept them, but I'm open to hearing them. And then I can make fundamental distinctions between them. But in a university setting, I should be able to hear the idea and not shout it down. Now, again, I'm not, uh, here's the point that you made on my behalf before. It's very different if I go and and and, and nail uh, a sign to in a dorm room of a Muslim students and says, the sign says, uh, towel heads, get out of America, right? No, that is, that is, that, that is hate speech. And this, the university should have every right to punish and prosecute uh, that kind of a person who's causing threatening behavior. Uh, but, you know, if, if it's merely offending someone or in some ways conflicts with their idea, it should be protected under the First Amendment. So you have two universes. On the one hand, you have one oncologist that restricts all kinds of speech, no matter what it is, because some people just don't want to hear it. And outside the campus, they let in too much speech on the theory that the government has no right to stop you. More speech is better than less speech. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. I can imagine many of your critics, the knee-jerk reaction would be, oh my gosh, this is part of the culture of overly exaggerated microaggressions and the safe space. But you actually say, no, universities are places where we should have free exchange of ideas. And I think some of your critics uh, probably would be surprised at the nuance of your position. Because, exactly. Because you wouldn't you are, read, right? Yeah, you are, try, you are having, making a nuance 
point here. Yes, thank you. Yes, you're quite right. I think that if you're if you don't read the book and you only act reflexively on well, who is this guy to say that speech should be restricted at all? They're going to immediately assume that I'm from one of those college campuses that believes that hurt feelings should be protected against. Uh, and no, not at all. In fact, I uh, there's a lot in the book that I think will surprise people. For instance, I actually think that the Danish cartoons that mocked Muhammad are totally fair game because that's not a situation where you're threatening Muslims. You might be insulting their religion, but so does the Book of Mormon on Broadway that plays all over the world. And you don't see the Mormons standing 40,000 people strong in, uh, uh, in uh, Utah screaming, uh, death to Broadway, death to South Park. Uh, they don't, they don't do that. Uh, you know, you can ride a, a car through the Bible belt in Texas and you'll see a billboard that'll have Jesus Christ on it and says, when it's time to buy a new Ford, I go to Bill Buck's Ford. And you don't see Christians going nuts about that or Jews, uh, for, because, you know, Moses had a speech impediment or that he dropped the 10 commandments. So his hands are fumbling. Uh, you know, if, Islam wants to function as a polit as as a political movement as well as a religion. It needs to be able to be subject to the same criticism as any other political system. So no, I don't I, I don't believe that what's on campus is correct. I think it's completely incorrect to shout down and sh and and silence ideas. It's only important to make sure that people aren't harmed and hurt feelings are not the same thing as harm. You mentioned uh, a moment ago, I guess, Justice Holmes and some other people that came up with this language for the marketplace idea of ideas, right? And I mean, you you find that metaphor sorely lacking for many reasons, if not for the only reason that real markets, right, everybody, even the most laissez-faire libertarians argue that you need some government regulation in, in market in markets. But it seems like th this idea that is, is it just naive that some that somehow the truth will just set us free in every context? I mean, it seems like a really rosy picture of human nature, especially with all the research we know, media studies, that once you get a falsehood out, it's very hard to get. This is why Trump is so effective, right? You, you get a falsehood out there. It's very tough to get out of the public circulation. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. The, the presumption that more speech leads to more truth. In my book, I point out the more speech, the more information we provide, the more overload without quality controls leads to more confusion. Uh, and the and ideas that are not actually ideas, but they're actually violence is what ultimately is what people are walking. That's the takeaway from them. It's violent, not an actual idea. We should not be afraid to say there is a marketplace of ideas for ideas, not just anything that comes out of your mouth. Uh, not everything should qualify, just like food is regulated and drugs are regulated. We regulate other industries. Uh, uh, the stock market is regulated because we don't want people selling shares of companies that don't exist. And we don't want people selling ideas that are not ideas. They're masquerading their hate. And it pretends to be ideas that we throw into the public square. And then people go run with it and say, hey, look what I just got in the public square. So this, uh, you know, laissez-faire capitalism, first of all, it doesn't even exist in marketplace of commodities and goods and services. It's not true. We have all kinds of restrictions and protections. Uh, and so we should have them with speech as well. Uh, and number two... The, the presumption is that uh, uh, that uh, that it would make us better. But in fact, in the book, I talk a lot about, you know, what people know and don't know. 
in an open marketplace of ideas, how come people don't know things? If it's really an if it's an open market marketplace with the purpose of reaching truths, uh, then why isn't it that they would not? Why do they not know this? Uh, so the, the you know the the factual uh, matters that simply go unknown or unmet uh, are not being resolved in this marketplace of ideas. And then lastly, Scott, to speak about the the inadequacy or the absurdity of the marketplace's ideas. And in all other marketplaces, if I build a better widget or phone or something, it will be the one that everyone will have and your crappy phone, no one will buy and you're going to go out of business. That's what happens in a market, right? The better, again, that's the argument, the better product wins and eventually you go out of business, not in the marketplace of ideas. Didn't the Nazis lose in World War II? Wasn't that idea over? Why are they still with us? If this is a real marketplace that leads to finality and truth and, and a sense of coherence, why are why is why is the clan still in business? Why are their ideas their I would say ideas in quotes? Why are the ideas of the alt-right uh, still given uh, the respect as if they're giving as if they're actually contributing to a marketplace of ideas because they're not. And we shouldn't be afraid of acknowledging that. Now, when you say things about regulation of markets or food and things, I mean, most most people in the mainstream of North American life are going to say, of course, of course, that's the case, right? Now, we might dicker about how much regulation is appropriate. But my guess is when you start talking about that analogously with speech, your critics, you, you, you've got to hear fascist, you're a totalitarian, right? I mean, 1984, right? I mean, this is, do you get a lot of these kind of criticisms from this kind of argument? Yeah, I'm going to, you know, Scott, I'm going to get hammered. So, <laughs> you know, there's, I love our conversation, but it's not going to make a difference. You know, most people won't read the book. And they will they will bash me on the internet. Um, they won't even know what I'm saying. Uh, but the the mere idea of it uh, will be so offensive to them. Um, again, are they such absolutists when it comes to uh, you know drugs, unregulated drugs? Uh, you go into the pharmacy and you can get anything you want. No, they would say no, no, no. Of course, we need the FDA to make sure that our food is safe uh, and our. Uh, and we don't take uh, drugs that can harm us. But why aren't they feel the same way about ideas? Uh, why don't they say the same thing? Look, uh, I don't want to be bombarded with spam all day because uh, that's what we are. We're being what kind of a marketplace is this that we have no restrictions and anything that looks like an idea that says it's an idea is an idea. Uh, why don't we say we're interested in environmental pollution and we're interested in intellectual pollution? We don't fill our brains with nonsense uh, on the guise that it's an idea. It's not. And why can't we just be afraid that we can make the distinction? People will say, how, who's to decide? Well, there's all kinds of things that we make the government to decide or juries to decide that we don't really like in the end, but they're capable of making the decisions. Uh, jurors sit uh, all the time uh, together and they hear uh, a, a civil case uh, tort uh, about a vicious car accident, right? And they're supposed to determine whether the plaintiff will ever walk again or not. And two different experts come in. One expert says, are you kidding? The plaintiff will never do anything again. And the defendants representing the insurance company walk in with their expert and he says, are you kidding? He could run the New York Marathon tomorrow. So the jury goes into the jury room and they have to evaluate the evidence. And yes, there's a lot of ambiguity. Let me tell you something, Scott. Most people have never been in a vicious car accident. You have the slightest idea. They can, they can hear all the testimony. 
they don't know anything about it. But everybody you've been humiliated. <laughs> Everyone knows what it to, what it means to be exposed to indignity. I think that we should give ourselves the credit uh, that we would be able to know the difference between speech that is in de- designed to improve society and to raise issues that can be debated in the public square and speech that is merely used as a weapon to harm a fellow human being. And you'd kind of argue, right, that with all the imperfections of uh, our judicial system and that we're going to get decisions wrong and and there's ambiguities, as you said, that that that's better than anarchy, (laughs) that we choose that we choose a system that's imperfect and fraught with ambiguities at places than say, well, we can't make any decisions about anything. Yes, I, 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 I don't think the present system is workable. I think the understanding of the First Amendment is broken uh, since the 1960s. Again, the founding fathers did not understand free speech in the way that we understand it. They, In their letters, their correspondence, their debates, they were very clear. Free speech must coexist with the rights of other people, right, to tranquility, to peace, to citizenship. It never occurred to them. I always I say in the book, uh, you know, we should always, often ask ourselves, what would George Washington think? Or what would he do? Uh, do you really think that George Washington believes that you should burn an American flag right in front of the face of a family uh, that lost a loved one fighting a war uh, on behalf of the United States? You really, really? You really think that he thought, they all thought that this was all about cross burnings and neo-Nazi marches? No, they thought about speech that the King George III wouldn't let us say. We were opposed to his stamp tax. We were opposed to his tea taxes. And we, when we were opposing him, they threw us in jail. So we want a chance to say we're opposed to your policies without being thrown into jail. That's what they understood it to be. We changed the understanding of free speech in the First Amendment around the 1960s, where we expanded the rights to mean anything that anyone says, if it's a burp, if it's a belch, it doesn't matter. If they say it, we call it an idea and we ask it to compete in a marketplace that is already over overwhelmed by non-ideas. We can call and we have a case law where there's some speech that's called non-speech, low value speech. Why don't we just say we're going to take this much more seriously? That's not really speech. It's really non-speech. And it's because its intention is to harm another human being and to trample on their rights. It's not there to perfect society. Jonah Goldberg, an American sort of political commentator, wrote a book called The Suicide of the West. And in it, he talks about how, you know, we have this unique kind of liberal democratic system with with free markets, exchange of ideas. But that it's it goes against most of human nature, which is more tribal, right? And 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 it's it's a unique kind of fragile experiment around you know, it it it's it kind of bucks against our, our a lot of our tribal history history for millennia. Or do you think there's something about like and anxiety and anxiety and anxious points we often go back to the tribalism. Do you think there's a connection to tribalism and this kind of misunderstanding of speech that I that you know I can say anything in a me versus you us versus them kind of context well yes I mean I think look it's the only way to explain Scott why European countries they also have the right to free speech but they also have the right to human dignity and in fact in most of these countries the right to human dignity is all over their constitutions you have the great line of the book you say in Europe dignity is akin to mother's milk in the United States Dignity is not even an acquired taste. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, 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 the, the word dignity, Scott, does not appear in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. But in Western societies, as you know, also built, uh, founded on the cradle of the Enlightenment. All of we're all reading the same books, right? Locke, Rousseau. We all read the same books. We all had revolutions. 
that resulted in a, a sense of democratic deliberation and participation. Uh, and w- that's the w- what we call Western democracies. Why then uh, are neo-Nazis thrown into jail in Austria and Germany? Uh, why then is a shock comic like Doudonnet in France thrown into jail uh, for his act says, don't you think we should bring back uh, gas chambers? and crematorium so we can kill some of these Jews. In fact, let me give you the names of some Jews in France we should kill. They march him right out of the club and they put him in jail, right? Here, he'd be a star and everyone would defend him and say, well, you know, it's kind of vulgar and boorish and he's a horrible human being, but he has the right to say it. The, the country can't stop him. The government can't arrest him for that, for God's sakes. We're a free society. So the question is, why are we an outlier? Why do the Europeans look at us like we're out of our minds <laughs> Why do they look at us and go, what? You let Nazis go into a community of Holocaust survivors? What? After your country was the last to give up slavery <laughs> with your horrible racist past, you actually let people burn crosses on the lawns of black people? Are, are you kidding me? Which, by the way, I've always thought it's like, wait, if there's one country that should not allow that, it should be us. We should be the first country that goes, here's something we cannot do. And by the way, Scott, this is one of the reasons the German constitution, which was rewritten after the Holocaust, has the word dignity everywhere because they learned the lessons of the Holocaust and said human dignity matters. And our tribal sense is we pursue our happiness and we pursue our happiness without regard to our neighbor. We can we'll run over you if we have to. You know, if I need to get to my happiness, my happiness is over there. You're in the way. You get out of the way. I'm going to apply you down. And so I do think there is a kind of, you know, American exceptionalism that has this kind of aggression in it uh, that says that, you know, I, I should be able to get off my chest anything I want to say. And I don't like black people. So here's what I'm going to say. And, and I would say, well, you don't have to love black people. And if you're opposed of some policy that the government has that favors black people, you should write an op-ed, you know. But if you think you can take a tiki torch and and carry a gun and wear military fatigue and march by the statue of Robert E. Lee, that is non-speech. That is violence. And even if you don't kill anybody, we're going to treat it as if it is violence. Speaking of dignity, you're going to get some shots at your dignity for writing a book like this, right? I mean, people, you said, you know, most people are not going to probably take a careful read. They're going to, you know, hear some things that offend their sensibilities and they're going to unload on you. Why put yourself through this? Like, what's the story? Why write this book? Like, when did you first feel the need to write uh, Saving Free Speech from itself? What's the story behind it? Good question, Scott. You know, I, I think I was born with a very thick skin uh, because this is not my first rodeo. Um, I've written five novels, uh, but I've also written, this is my fourth book of nonfiction. Uh, the first one was The Myth of Moral Justice, in which I t- attack the entire legal system uh, for failing to provide moral outcomes, focusing only on legal outcomes, legal, correct legal decisions that don't sit right with most people. So that only unless you went to law school would it make sense. But very often people sit at dinner tables and go, can you believe that? The law lets you do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And I thought I, I took up the book is really an attack that says it's it's it, it holds the legal system up to moral scrutiny says the positions that are treated here procedurally as correct legally are really wrong morally. And there should be a coherence, a symmetry between a legal outcome and a moral outcome. They shouldn't be so disparate. I wrote another book about revenge in which it's called Payback, the case for revenge. By the way, that first book hammered 
the legal system, judges, prosecutors, lawyers, everywhere I went. Uh, the New York Times reviewed that book three different times because it received that much, three different times, Saturday, Sunday, and Tuesday, um, because it received that kind of attention and attack was made against our legal system. How dare you attack plea bargains and settlements and evidence rules and things that I pointed out have moral limitations. A payback basically says, uh, you know, that for, for the vast majority of humankind, uh, people took justice into their own hands uh, and tribally, as you say, uh, they made justice work uh, through vengeance uh, by knowing not to take too much. Because if you take too much, you'll start a new recycling of revenge. Uh, and the enlightenment in which we gave up on this, the rights of man <clears throat> were uh, subordinated to the rule of law, uh, means that we give over, the government becomes our surrogate to provide justice for us. So the government has to do it. And this book, again, picked, Payback picked up on it. It says, the reason why revenge movies are so popular, right? Why are they so popular? Uh, doesn't everyone know that revenge is bad? Well, the biggest selling films of all time are revenge movies. Uh, so obviously, it's not pornography to people. They sit in theaters and they don't get up and throw their corn, uh, their popcorn box out and go, this is disgusting. This is a revenge movie. No, the reason they stay until the end is something happened on the screen that is morally unbearable and someone's getting away with it. And all of us can't tolerate it. Forget the victim. None of us can take it. And neuroscience has actually determined that, Scott, that when we wire each other up, even if, I, if you and I are playing a game and I'm cheating and the other people are watching us, you're, you're the people that listen to your podcast, and they see Thane cheating, they go nuts. Their brain lights up just like yours. They don't like it. And it's the same reason why revenge films work, uh, because the legal system in each of these films is given the first chance to make it right. It blows it. And then all of a sudden, an unlikely Avenger steps in and makes things right, does make punishes the wrongdoer because if that's the just desserts. So the book was really a, 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 a manifesto on behalf of victims, that victims need to feel that justice was done for them uh, because that was what they were allowed to do in ancient times by making it a tribal uh, justice system. And the legal system should be not so smug as to think that justice is served when the individuals walk away and say, I don't feel justice was served. I feel like I got screwed. And so, by the way, that book was attacked by people. If you go on Amazon, I remember the first review on Amazon was out two months before the book came out. <laughs> and the, a woman simply said, this book, you can go look at it. First, this funny review. She writes, so she didn't read it. She didn't know what it was. She just knew the title. And she said, this book cannot be. That's what she said. You cannot have such, cannot be as if this book cannot exist. Um I don't know if it would have made a difference to her. I'm not, I wasn't advocating individuals going at each other, uh, but I did say that eye for an eye meant something. It meant a proportionate response so that people could go about their lives feeling that they were justly tr uh, treated under the law and were not there. There, the crime against them uh, was not ignored. Um, so yes, this book is in, I would say, Scott, is in the same family of the other two. You had to be out of your mind to take on the legal system. You had to be out of your mind to say revenge is a good thing and that there's a reason why we've always done it. And the reason why Gladiator and Braveheart, I saw Jennifer Garner's got this movie out called Peppermint, which I watched the other day, which is, fills in nicely some of the same themes. Um, uh, all same thing, uh, same basic principle. You cannot expect me to walk away knowing. Uh, True Grit was a really good example, right? 
a, a girl basically goes to hire a U.S. Marshal. She's carrying her own little crappy gun. Why? Because her father was murdered and the murderer has gone free. And a 12-year-old girl, however she old is, she she knows this is an example of her daughterly love. I cannot allow my father's murderer to, to go unpunished. And here I am in the Wild West, and I'm ready to pay a man of true grit to go off into the territories and find him and kill him. And I want to be there, too, because that's what a loving daughter would do. I don't see people walking out of that movie saying this is disgusting. That girl should go home and play with her dolls. Well, I'm glad that you uh, have have jumped uh back on the horse again and written this provocative book saving free speech from itself it's a great book and i appreciate you spending some time talking to me about it i enjoyed it scott very good program thank you thanks for listening to give and take if you like what you heard please do a couple things for me they are so helpful if you do them share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Thane for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Saving Free Speech from Itself. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.